Welcome to The Truth in This Art. I am your host, Rob Lee. And thank you for tuning in for more authentic stories from creatives from Baltimore and beyond. Today, I am excited to welcome my next guest, a seasoned media executive with over three decades of experience, known for his groundbreaking initiatives, including the renowned HBCU Week. He's a senior vice president and the chief content officer at Maryland Public Television. Please give a warm welcome to Travis Mitchell. Welcome to the podcast. Hey, thanks for having me. Thanks for having me, Rob. Thank you for coming. Always good to connect with a you know fellow fellow HBC guy. You know, with that <laughs> that sort of energy. So you know, for starters, um, I like to kick things off by like diving into the journey. And if you will, could you share sort of that that key moment or experience that you know led you on your path? Like you know, there's always that one thing that sticks out um, in the the sort of Marvel parlance and the recent Spider-Man movie, folks will say it's a canon event. You know, I had that one when it comes to doing this, you know, uh, there was a former president that said something really ill about Baltimore. And I was like, activated. That's that sort of pinpoint moment. But for you and your career, um, what has been that sort of like introductory, that aha moment, that starting moment for you and your journey? Well, thanks for the question. And and without a doubt, it's it's my role as a student spokesperson for um, the largest student protest in Morgan State's history uh, when I was a sophomore. See, I came from Raleigh, North Carolina with a, a dream of playing basketball. I had a double scholarship. I was an honor student. I was a basketball player and things on the uh, on the court didn't go as I anticipated. And so I was able to a red shirt, take a red shirt year, my sophomore year, uh, right when the season started. And then it gave me some time to explore what it truly meant to be a student, not just a student athlete. And so I got involved with the campus newspaper, The Spokesman. And um, the SGA student leaders came by and uh, leaders from the Panhellenic Council and said that, you know, we're going to we're going to protest tomorrow some of the conditions on campus and uh, we're gonna meet with the administration and and uh, you all might wanna come cover it. And so the next day um, while sitting in the administration office in Truth Hall, it, it, at the end it was, well, we need you to move from being uh, covering this. We need you to be our spokesperson because you have media experience. And so uh, I really didn't have media experience. I only had a week or so uh, on the spokesman and a semester news writing class. But um, but I took the challenge and to become the spokesperson and uh, it changed my life. Uh, it is something that uh, you look back on and, 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 and you don't know uh, how profound of an impact it's going to have. But it truly was transformative, first and foremost. I was able to equip myself quite well in forming partnerships with uh, the local media. Uh, many relationships I have to this day uh, were from that point, which is roughly uh, 30 years ago, 33 years ago to be exact, uh, when, when that happened. And so um, I was able to gain in my confidence uh, in putting together media strategies. I was was, was we won the public relations battle with a very popular governor who happened to be a Democrat of the state of Maryland, uh, William Donald Schaefer. Um, but we won in the court of public opinion. Uh, we were able to come up with uh, a theme uh, and a saying for uh, students to remember when reporters 
inevitably came up on campus and wanted to get the reaction from student body. And that was all of our love, peace and happiness we're going to give to Morgan. And so the the net effect of it was that uh, the media became convinced uh, that we as Morgan students who were protesting against inequitable funding, which resulted in dilapidated buildings, um, resulted in not having enough security, on and on and on. Um, they were convinced that we were right yeah. and that um, it was not fair that the state of Maryland had for 40 years neglected Morgan's uh, State University and the build out of our campus. And so as our protests prolonged, uh, it went from a sit-in to our administration building to uh, a two and a half mile caravan that descended upon Annapolis and a meeting with the governor and uh, included a hunger strike, included uh, on the seventh day when we returned the campus to our administration, it was because we had reached a tentative agreement with the governor. Um, we had discovered in our due diligence that there was a 25 year plan of development for Morgan um, that had not been funded. And so a plan is only as good as the paper is written on if there's no investment in it. Right. And so we kept pressing the government to take action now. And he had in his power to authorize the renovation of our two worst dormitories, which back then were the male dormitories that happened to be going under renovation again, that's Baldwin and Cummings. Mm. Uh, and we needed him to go ahead and move those dormitories under renovation. And so uh, when we left the building, we did so uh, with a note to the governor that if he did not show action, uh, that we would come back. And so as the governor delayed to get us to right before finals, myself and five other students um, put on trash bags and had a press conference in front of Truth Hall and said, um, Mr. Governor, you've trashed your word. And today we're going to return your trash to your doorsteps. And we began to walk from Morgan to Annapolis. And the funny thing, Rob, is uh, being from Raleigh, North Carolina, I thought what a, it's not a big deal. It's only about 13 miles. And then I got 13 miles in and saw a sign that said Annapolis, 28 more miles. And then I knew we we were we were in for it. In fact, I think we started singing some old Negro spirituals at that particular time. But the reality was um, you asked me what changed my life. And it showed me that sometimes uh, you have to understand this saying, which is, you know, yesterday was great. Tomorrow may be greater. Um, but today uh, is a gift. And that's why it's called the present. You have to understand something about operating in the now. And so as a result of our labor, um, I'm pleased to share that uh, Morgan received, we were a catalyst. Let's be clear. We were simply a catalyst to light fire behind something that already existed, a movement that was ready to, to burst. And so the president at that time, Dr. Earl S. Richardson, who is a mentor of mine to this day, um, really had already put together a, a campus improvement plan. And so we were the fuel to, to light the fire behind the state. Um, and, in, and in 25 years, that plan resulted in about 1.5 billion in on-campus renovations. If anybody has been up to Morgan, you'll see that uh, Dr. Richardson's uh, vision came to pass. And then Dr. Wilson, who replaced um, Dr. Richardson, our current president, 
has his own vision and, and over the last 14 years has initiated some 1.1 billion in campus renovation. So altogether, we've had well over $2 billion of campus renovation since my time at Morgan. And it just says that if you invest seeds of hope and inspiration in today, invest in your time, talent, and treasure, that it will produce a future tree of success for future generations who you do not know. Wow, that is that is the and I don't even know if that even qualifies as a introductory question. That was <laughs> I love it. Like you you've crushed two of my, maybe three of my other questions. So, you know, you're making my job easier. So thank you for that. And and thank you for for taking us back down sort of like you know, sort of the inspirations that are there and memory lane, if you will. Um, you know, you mentioned some of the different landmarks on Morgan's campus. I go back to being a, a, a goofy 18 year old and like, oh man, 2003, this is great. Right. And, um, and even, you know, can extend a little bit and relate in this way in, in doing this and doing like audio and, and doing radio and all of that stuff. It, it started with this sort of off chance thing at um, WEAA through my scholarship program at the Grave School. It's like, hey, go over there and, you know, get on uh, Omar Muhammad's uh, show and just just talk a bit. And that was me getting bit by the bug, you know. Wow. <laughs> and it's funny you mentioned Omar Muhammad. Omar and I were roommates um, um, after we graduated from college. We were really close at Morgan. So he's a good man and very proud of him. That's great. I want to move um, a little bit into sort of, you know, your 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 current work and sort of this, where does like sort of that intersection, how did the the story with, you know, Maryland Public uh, Television and you like, you know, your vision, your values, how did those two things like align their vision, their mission, your vision, your mission as, as an individual? How did they align specifically in your role as uh, chief content officer? Well, uh, I, I think let me let me prep you as well. So, um, you know, in my time in media, I went from the campus newspaper, the spokesman, um, I, at a very young age, um, around 23, I was a managing editor of four national publications um, coming out of Baltimore, um, called a company called Career Communications Group. And they were national trade publications that I was the managing editor of. And I morphed that into a time uh, where I launched my own uh, media firm for about seven years um, called Between the Lines Communications. And it's in, in in that capacity that I snagged a daily television show that I produced out of Washington, D.C. that was national. Uh, then I was recruited um, to join an effort by former heavyweight champion Evander Holyfield and at the time Cecil Fielder of the Yankees and Marlon Jackson of the Jackson family. And at that time, world famous uh, and notable attorney, African-American attorney, Willie E. Gary, um, to start a, a channel that was a competitor to BET. It was called the NBC Network, and then later it became the Black Family Channel. And um, I was the chief operating officer and executive vice president and grew that channel to, uh, we, we also were a precursor to what you see happening now. We had exclusive contracts with every HBCU conference. So you you see, we did over 300 live football and basketball games. Um, we covered baseball, track and field. Um, and so you name it. I've been working on developing content to support HBCUs for a very long time. Wonderful. And uh, upon successfully scaling that network and it being sold, 
uh, went back to North Carolina and ran a nonprofit for a number of years. And then the governor of North Carolina, uh, there was an opening on uh, the board for UNCTV, now public PBS North Carolina. Uh, and the governor had his team reach out to me and ask if I was interested with my media background. And so my public media career began in earnest uh, when I was placed on the board of UNCTV somewhere around 2012. Um, so I was on the board of trustees for this statewide public media channel that actually helped teach me to read. You see, when I was growing up, my mother had recently divorced and we were in Raleigh, North Carolina, living with my grandmother. And uh, my mother went back to school to get not one, but two master's degrees so that she could create a better life. So I'm uh, being from the South. Uh, the one thing you know is we don't call uh, soap opera soap operas. We call them stories. And so when my grandmother, my signal to go to my room was when I heard the theme music for the Young and the Restless come on. That was my theme music. Uh, that was my signal to go to my room. And we only had four channels, Rob. We only had ABC, CBS, uh, and NBC. And you had this little channel called uh, PBS. And so when I when I turned to PBS uh, in my room, uh, that's where my world opened up. I was able to explore uh, the universe through Nova. I was able to uh, uh, identify with and 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 learn from um, Easy Reader. I knew Morgan Freeman as Easy Reader, not uh, Driving Miss Daisy. You know, I was able to uh, venture down Sesame Street on my way to Electric Company. So, so PBS is where I learned how to read. And um, so, to become the the later I was asked if I would step off the board by our new general manager and CEO and if I would take the helm as a chief content officer. And uh, I had been running a nonprofit at that time. And I said, this might be a good time for me to get back into media. And so it was uh, destiny to have me be the chief content officer of the very uh, TV, uh, PBS station that taught me how to read. And so my uh, my longing to return to the Maryland area it came from the fact that my daughter uh, decided to follow my footsteps as a freshman at Morgan. Um, and I had always wanted to come back what I consider my second home. Yeah. And um, Maryland Public Television was looking for senior vice president and chief content officer. And so I applied and uh, came here, uh, left UNC TV on February 25th, 2020. Got here on February 26, 2020, and then the first order of business was shutting down our programming uh, and productions because of COVID. Mm -hmm. And so I was here, uh, but really it, it took about a year and a half for me to really begin to circulate again in this Baltimore era. era. So that's really why I came, and, and our mission here um, is to uh, enrich lives and strengthen communities through the power of media. And uh, because of my background and many of the things I did at, in, at UNC uh, TV, um, it was all co community focused programming because I believe that the value of public media lies in our ability to tell authentic stories about the communities that we serve. And the more we do that, the more people resonate with our content because commercial content doesn't necessarily care about you on what's happening in your community, um, but we do. And so it's it's ingrained in our DNA. And that's why uh, I believe this was a, a good fit for me at the right place at the right time. Thank you. Wow.
Um, again, you know, knocking out these questions. So I appreciate you. And I appreciate that, that insight there. Um, yeah, I think when we're in a sort of local, like content creation and, and, and speaking or being representative of a, a community, and it doesn't seem to be reflective at times of the community, there, there's some sort of disconnect. Are you really in a community? And there is almost like some sort of sense of how do we go about this? How do we go about making this happen? How do we scale it? How do we grow it? And listening to you, there's obviously this this strong track record and knowledge base and knowing like, yeah, this this fits, this fits, this makes sense. So if you would, um, could you share you know, maybe two to three insights that have kind of guided the way that you go about selecting sort of content and and working in that capacity that's reflective of of the community that is reflective of um you know sort of like a, a narrative so I, I think for for public media uh, yeah. being a local a local media outlet uh, and in our case we serve the entire state of Maryland uh, Northern Virginia DC parts of West Virginia Pennsylvania it's very important that when people tune in to watching that they see themselves. And so this also led to me developing um, a diverse slate of programming uh, post George Floyd. And I'll talk about that more in a moment, but I think you have to be relevant by showcasing um, the people that are in your backyard, so to speak. I think you have to give them access to the airwaves so that they can own the airwaves. You know, it's really important for people to own the airwaves. And that's the differentiation differentiator between us and commercial media is that people can actually engage with the content on a regular basis. Um, and then I, I think you, you have to remember that your content has to have three things. Uh, it's got to be entertaining. It should inform and it should inspire. So the best content, I think, does the three things. They, it's entertaining. It's informative. It teaches somebody and then it inspires them, you know, evoking emotion out of people, whether it's laughter or empathy, I think is the sign of incredibly compelling content. And it's not always how polished the content is mm -hmm. it is how compelling it is so i try to look for content that moves people and we try to develop content that fits within our mission which is to enrich lives and strengthen communities through the power of media that power is the ability for me media to resonate deeply with people and move them in some instances to action move them to understanding, moving them to do something positive uh, with the people that are around them. And so I think those are the filters that I have used to decide what fits for the moment of any channel or any station that I happen to be overseeing. Wow, that is, that's that's great. I'm, I'm over here, like like I said, I'm fanboying out because like this is the thing that I've literally been preaching to folks when it comes to this sort of like you know, industry building out a podcast and all of that stuff. And, you know, I, I talk with folks and they'll say, oh, I don't think it's going to be great. I don't have the best mics and so on. It's like, do you have an idea? Does it make sense? Can you be entertaining? You know, is it inspiring? Things of that nature. And I was like, look at it as a draft. You're going to eventually find it. You'll eventually get the budget to get that fancy new mic that you really right. don't. But, you know, but you'll be able to get them some of those upgrades. But really, 
you know, it's the why. It's like, why are you doing it? Having that sort of like North Star, if you will. Yeah. I mean, if you're not using your cell phone to record yourself, then why spend money on a mic? You you start with where you are. Mm-hmm. Um, when I started with the campus newspaper at Morgan, it had not been published for eight years. That didn't stop me. I went about it. I was the editor in chief, uh, became the publisher. We went out and raised our own money. But I thought my publication was just as important as the Daily Baltimore Sun or the USA Today. In fact, I, I would call and set up meetings with the publishers and editors in chief because I saw myself eye level to eye level with them. You're a publisher. I'm a pub- publisher. Don't discount me because of my age or your perceived um, um, view of my lack of, uh, of experience. Yeah. No, the reality is this is the seat I'm in now. I have some questions. Let's talk peer to peer. Mm-hmm. And so uh, respectfully, but yeah. confidently. And I think if you're going to be in the creative space, you have to go with what do you see inside and just be patient enough to give birth to it. When you when you when you learn the skills that go along with content creation, you can give birth to what you see internally. But you also have to be confident enough to know you may not be the best uh, producer or the best editor or the best host. But if you have the vision, you are the content creator. So if you just attract people to you that can buy your vision, then you're one step closer to being able to 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 give birth and produce and bring to the world that concept or that content or that idea whose time has come. Yeah, I um I've been calling it riding that wave. Uh, maybe it's in an Aquarius thing, but call it riding that wave of like, look, I have a vision of what I want to accomplish, and sometimes it's a little broader than what it originally looked like. Like, oh, I didn't even know I had an interest in that. Does it make sense? Yeah. Is it aligned? And but still trying to see it to its fruition. And you have so many different folks that might come in and say, oh, well, maybe you should do it this way, or maybe you should change it. And it's like not a, no no you know no disrespect no qualms about listening to another person and their insight. People may know more than you, but it's like I know my vision. Yeah. <laughs> so it's just it's like it has to fit. It has to fit within my framework. Um. So what what I want to do in these like next few questions, which would ultimately be the the final few questions, is I want to talk about HBCU week. Can we um can we can we can we talk about that a bit? Absolutely. So tell us about HBCU week. Which well, is- <laughs> I think to get started, I, I shared my backstory. You asked me the question about a transformative moment, and yes. it was at Morgan. I grew up on the campus of Shaw University in Raleigh, North Carolina, where my father was a basketball coach. My my late uncle was a, was a uh, chair of the city school board, the county school board. Um, my mother was a graduate at that institution. It is the oldest HBCU in the South that has given birth to several other HBCUs in North Carolina, North Carolina A&T State University being one of them, was birthed on the campus of Shaw University. Um, when I was walking that campus as a child, it's what I now realize was a Wakanda experience. It's the place where I saw Black excellence in action. Unapologetic, strong Black leaders who demanded excellence from their students. And and that was an environment that I was raised in that nurtured me. It is the place that gave my parents an opportunity to go to school when majority institutions, PWIs that we call them now, would not accept 
people of color. And so my parents went to Shaw. They chose Shaw, but Shaw also chose them. And they loved Shaw University, where I now happen to serve on the board of trustees. But when I came to Maryland, in the aftermath of George Floyd, our CEO, Larry Unger, said, let's come up with a way to respond and not react to the crisis at hand. And so we developed a multi-year 10-point plan called Standing Against Racism, Fostering Unity Through Dialogue. And I said, one of the best ways for us to embrace the African-American community is through partnership with the six HBCUs located in the DMV, Bowie State, Coppin State, Morgan, Howard, UDC, and in the University of Maryland Eastern Shore. And I thought that if we could bring to light films that reflected my Wakanda experience, walking on the campus of Shaw and leading a protest at Morgan, if we could capture what makes HBCUs American treasures, the original diversity, equity, and inclusion experiments in America, where uh, philanthropists and 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 uh, uh, white people who saw the need to remedy and address the ills of slavery, along with uh, free blacks and along with um, newly freed, freed slaves would come together and open up the doors to educate a population that was largely illiterate and ignorant because of uh, the rules of slavery and the oppression of the slave masters. Um, yet, in a few short years gave rise to a professional class of newly educated freemen. I thought if we could explain the history of HBCUs, if we could explain the contemporary relevance of HBCUs, for instance, HBCUs produce the lion's share of STEM graduates uh, annually in this nation. If we could unpack the mystery of HBCUs, we could create an opportunity to increase the value proposition of HBCUs by strengthening uh, awareness, brand identity, and also uh, brand equity uh, so that the community could understand that it is imperative that it supports the local HBCUs. And so if the African-American community was going to heal, no better way for it to heal than to showcase something positive in the midst of so much national division and chaos. That's, that's beautiful, it's, it's important. Um, it's it's important to do that. Um, I, I remember just, you know, during that time and even a little further back with like Freddie Gray here in, in Baltimore and sort of what that experience is being being like and um and and being doing this, doing media, doing podcasts, like you know, I've been doing it as long as I have, that you know, I couldn't exclude it from conversation despite it right. not being a, a topic. And I found that in doing this particular podcast, um, like early on when, you know, sort of the George, George Floyd and all of the the, the protests and the, the the sort of response to it, I got some of the weirdest DMs from folks, you know, of me. Oh, oh, not like, oh, well, you didn't experience that. I was like, oh, you're going to tell me what my experience is as a black exactly. in this country. Right. It's like, don't get it confused. And no, yeah. still this and it still comes through this, this lens. 
Yeah. You know, and this is not what it is, but if you want me to get real, I can get real and really share something that's representative of being in this city the entire time I've lived here and having some of the things that I've seen and even more broadly, because you you look local, but also you look more broadly and you look for yeah. places that are similar and you're like, I see this everywhere. That's right. That's right. I mean, it's, you know, so, so we have a choice and, 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 and people have to understand that we choose as black men in America to um, invest in ourselves so that we can be pillars in our community, but it does not mean um, that we don't pay a price. Um, and so I think it's important to be truthful about our truly unique American experience um, so that the larger public can understand, but also for the larger public and future generations to see our resilience and our refuse um, to be denied attitude, um, just living and walking and striving to progress every day despite the obstacles that we might face. And I refuse to let others hijack the American dream. My foreparents and my forefathers shed their blood for America to be a free nation. And we have to be determined to fight for that liberty, to fight for equal access. And that's what the HBCU experience, I think, teaches us, that we have a responsibility to fight for freedoms. We have a responsibility to address the moment at hand. Had it not been for the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee founded at the campus of Shaw University in 1960, it was students who desegregated lunch counters across the country. It was students who marched in Selma and faced fire hoses and, and, and dogs. It was students who led that charge. So Black HBCUs present an opportunity for the next generation of leaders to be trained and to operate in the now. So had it not been for SNCC, there would have been no Civil Rights Act, no Voting Rights Act, therefore no Obama. So there are things that happen on the campuses of HBCUs that prepare students to really truly impact their generations and impact their world. So when you tune in to HBCU week this week, September 4th, starting on Monday, September 4th, all the way through uh, Sunday, September 10th, you'll see a lineup that celebrates the history, the culture, the legacy of HBCUs, 27 hours, uh, most of which are in prime time. It's unprecedented. It's never been done locally. It's never been done nationally. 27 uh, hours of content with repeats on Sunday, encore presentations. And Monday night, if I could put in a plug for Alma, Alma Mater, if you're a Morgan, a Morganite, uh, you really want to tune in because Welcome to HBCU Week gives you a preview at 7 on Monday the 4th. This is Labor Day Monday uh, at 4. You get a one-hour treat where you get a chance to learn uh, everything that's coming up for HBCU Week. And it was taped from the campus of the Morgan State University, the national treasure. So there's an extensive interview with our president, Dr. David Wilson, uh, along with highlighting uh, other uh, conversations with dynamic student leaders on campus while we take you on a day-by-day -day, uh, sampling of what's to come up uh, for the rest of the week. So Monday night, on MPT is really Morgan night. You you start off with welcome to uh, welcome to HBCU week from the campus of Morgan State. Then you get right over into Dreamer, uh, which is about Jasmine Barnes, a Morgan alum um, who commissioned was commissioned to do some some work with the Baltimore Choral Arts Society, paying homage to Harriet Tubman and Frederick Douglass. Uh, using Mozart pieces. Uh, and so she's a dynamic um, um, artist and you'll get a chance to see her work. Her work um, followed, 
excuse me, followed by Sounds of the Game featuring uh, an interview with Dr. Melvin Miles, his 49-year career of uh, being at the helm of the Magnificent Marching Machine. And then we end up with um, uh, Morgan Choir, a joyful celebration, which is pays homage to Dr. Nathan Carter, legendary choir director at Morgan, and an update with his students and protégés. So Monday night is by far packed with nothing but stories about the national treasure and our rich graduates and people. Wow. I mean, so so Labor Day, we have, you know, the real plate since that's like the last time for barbecue, really. And then we have like the media plate with all of this like diverse and great program you programming you've been describing. I am looking forward to it. I mean, uh, it's it's going to be great. Um, and that's and the cool thing is you because, you know, media professional, you know, you've answered the last three questions in, in that last pitch there. So I appreciate that. Well, we do, Rob, want to tell people to go to mpt.org backslash HBCU. That's mpt.org backslash HBCU to see the lineup for yourselves. There's great trailers and promotional videos up there. Uh, check it out and tune in. Don't forget to tune in. Tell everybody. Tell your mom and them. Tell your friends. Tell everybody. Tune in uh, next week, Monday, September 4th uh, through Sunday, September 10th for HBCU Week. DVR it, record it, watch it over and over again. We need your support. Absolutely. Um, so in these these final moments here, I want to I want to hit these two rapid fire questions with you because I think I think they're fun. I think they're fun. Okay. Uh, this is the first one. Um, and, you know, I see you the you got your jacket on right now. You know, the exact type have to wear a certain fit. What is your go to like accessory? Are you a pocket square guy? Are you a tie guy? Po pocket square. Okay. Whether I wear a tie or not, I I'm known. I just didn't happen to wear it today, but that's become my thing. My daughter kind of redesigned my look and she wanted me to be known for pocket squares. So I kind of have a, a thing for pocket squares. I'm working on that myself, actually. And I've been working with a weird sort of ascot thing with things that it shouldn't be with. It's like, eh, I'm putting the ascot on. It's like, so the big guy with the ascot, that's he would have talked to you. That's going to be my thing. Um, this this is sort of the last one. Um, you, you mentioned Wakanda earlier, right? And I, and I have to mention it. Um, so Wakanda's always been in 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 film um, depicted as a technological wonder with black folk at the helm. Um, what is your favorite gadget? Do you have a gadget you like? Oh, probably my flip phone that I just got. I mean, it's a it's a Samsung flip phone. Yeah. Um, it, it it reminds me of when I was a kid, the cool little uh, tricorder that they had and communicate on Star Trek, where they would flip it open. Uh, it's 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 the old flip phone. Um, times 100 right so uh i love this thing it's my favorite gadget it's i i run my life through this phone um for work i'm able to move around and still be connected to the office and do what i need to do from remote location so that's my favorite gadget that's dope that's dope so um one last time for the folks out there sitting in the back where can they check out the schedule where can they check out everything hbcu week that's coming up give them that website one more time please M pt m is in mary p is in pat t is in travis mpt.org backslash hbcu you can find out about our programming and you can also find about ways that you can watch us it's also live streamed so if you're in this area and you go to our website and you can't get home but you want to check it out you can live stream it through your phone or you can live stream it through our website so that you can stay on top of uh the each day's programming 
Well, there you have it, folks. I want to again thank Travis Mitchell for coming on, the great Travis Mitchell for coming on to the podcast. And I'm Rob Lee saying that there's art, culture, and a big emphasis on community in and around your neck of the woods. You've just got to look for it.